Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, we have to start. Happy Friday. Happy, Happy Friday. Friday. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. All of Happy us Friday, made it. everyone. Welcome. Okay, so question number one for today is why does it smell like that outside? Now, Dr. Payne, you are a lifelong Oregonian. I am. Why does it smell like that out there? Oh, yeah. Well, I didn't grow up in a valley like this. I grew oh, yeah. up um, close to Mount Hood. Mm -hmm. and uh, But this is, as the radio tells me this is air stagnation. Air stagnation. It is yeah. when there's no wind or weather coming through and we live in a valley here and so the air just kind of like settles and stops over our heads and it's going to be like that for many days, maybe even weeks. But they said maybe next week it'll clear up. Be, be careful out there. I don't even really know what the protocol is all for. Be, air just stagnation, but Be careful out there is really what we're saying. Um, and so we're that's why. We're not meteorologists <laughs> or whatever. Like we're not meteorologists, okay? Yeah. We are theologians and biblical scholars, and we're bringing you another week of our panel. We're so excited that you're here. Yes. As you've noticed, these past few weeks, we've been talking about Jesus. And in order to talk about Jesus, indeed, actually, in order to talk about God at all, as hopefully all of us are noticing, we end up talking in metaphors. We end up calling God a father, and we end up calling Jesus a son. Even just to use language itself is a kind of metaphor because you can actually say all these things, as those of you who are bilingual or trilingual know, in totally different languages, right? And so our, even our language is a kind of symbol or a symbolic gateway through which we access the world. So to call Jesus a son, as we continue to unpack that, is, is symbolic language in a sense. I do wonder this, though. I wanted to ask you this. And by the way, if this isn't something that you want to talk about, you can just deflect or go oh in some other, some, other, some other weird, awkward direction. But <laughs> okay. I happen to know that you are a mother of two strapping sons, yes. you and your wonderful husband, Thomas. Yes, they are large. And to have that experience children. as a biological parent of sons is, is a very unique experience that could help you understand the creed. But I also know, I also happen to know that you've had an experience as a parent which is also different from that biological experience, too. Yes. I wonder, would you mind talking about that and like what light does that shed on any of this? Oh, wow. Kind of stuff? Okay. Yeah. Um, that is a personal question and I am willing to answer it. Oh, um, I feel like we all know each other pretty well, We're right? We're friends here. <laughs> We're right? friends. Um, yes, I am um, a mother of two sons, it's true. Um, and they're hilarious and, and fun and I talk about them a lot. Um, but they were not, they were, uh, they were not my first children. My first children um, were two foster children who came into uh, the home that I've shared with my husband for many years. And um, the one in particular lived with us for almost three years um, before being adopted. And um, that, uh, they are my first children um, in my mind. Um, but I learned so many things in that process. I mean, one is is that um, what a gift it is um, to love and to be loved as a family in a lot of different contexts. I, I also learned a lot about the really radical, generous love of God. Um, because a lot of times when people um, say that they could never be foster parents, they'll say something. This is a common thing that people say, which is, wow, I can't believe you could do that. I could never do that. It would hurt me too much. Mm. And um, I experienced a lot of pain through that process because uh, loving someone who's in such a traumatic situation and, and having limitations to what you can do for a child um, is very painful. But um, that is, 
I think, uh, just a small picture of, of what it must feel like for God to love us as, as people, right? Wow. Like, there's something that, uh, you, you know, like, you need, the, the kind of love that God has for us, um, I, I experienced just a little bit of that. Um, but also, one of the things that was really amazing about fostering was uh, we had these two children in our lives, um, and then uh, it came time for uh, them to be adopted mm. by uh, other family members. And that was a hard thing for me because we wanted to, for them to be permanent members of our household, but because of uh, the state of Oregon, they have different policies about that. And so these children went to live with family members. Um, fortunately, I've kept in contact with them, and the, I think the most beautiful thing in the world has been to see those children grow into a family um, that didn't exist before mm. they, they began living with them. And that has me thinking a lot about Jesus as son, because the Bible talks a lot about how Jesus is the only son of God and that Christians are adopted into mm. uh, the family of God. So when I think about that, that is a beautiful, miraculous, sometimes really painful thing. It's, right. it's a different thing to come into a family um, at, at, or to create a family through fostering and adopting right. than it is uh, through biology. But it's one of the metaphors that the scripture right. uses when it talks about Jesus as son. So a lot of times, we don't use this a lot in like traditional evangelical circles, but the scriptures say that Jesus is our brother, right? And right. we are adopted into that family. So because that's what's got me thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, because like biology, you don't get to pick your kids. They just kind of come out and you're like, oh, you, yeah. you know? And, and you love them. And you don't, and you don't pick yeah. your parents. I mean, it's just like, this is a thing that happens. But when you start talking about foster parenting <laughs> and this theological language of adoption, yeah. We're not talking about choices, like God has agency, and there's some other bizarre, like, metaphor going on here. Yeah, um, I, I watched a, a video about a, um, a man who had been adopted, and he talked about how when he turned 40 years old, he, he called his parents and said, his adopted parents, and said, I, I choose you as my parents, Wow. right? And, and he said that his his father cried wow. when he heard that. Wow. And I think that that, that is a powerful relationship. Right. And I think it's a really, really beautiful, beautiful frame to think about who we are as Christians. So, I'm going to yeah. let you, Dr. Payne, introduce the panelists. Yes, and I'm going to go out yes, with the microphone so into the wild, into the animals, okay? This is where I'm going. <laughs> oh, yes. All right. Thank you, Dr. Doak. And uh, thank you so much to our panelists this morning. We have Dr. Sungu Yang, who you heard from on Monday. Um, we are super excited that you're here. Welcome back, Doctor. Uh, Sungu has written on a number. Dr. Yang has written on a number of topics, including um, he has a, a new book out on the preaching of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., which um, is getting rave reviews in scholarly circles as well as in in church settings. And we have Connie Armerding, Reverend, Reverend. Will be Reverend Connie Armerding, who's also a professor here um, in Theo. I hear your group cheering for you. Is that Huber what I 250. hear? Where's yes, Huber 250? Where's Huber 250? Yes, excellent. Yes, yes. She has many years of ministry experience. She is also a writer at Joy of It and um, a, a just a really excellent minister of the gospel, and we're super excited that she's here. Um, and then we also have Dr. Nijay Gupta, who you know uh, before from earlier. Yeah, um, and uh, Dr. Yang, homiletician, which means the study of preaching, if you're not familiar with that term, and Dr. Gupta is a New Testament scholar. 
And so welcome to the panel, friends. Welcome. We're super Thanks. happy that you're here. Um, so I want to start with one question before we kick it to uh, the, the students here, which is, um, Dr. Yang, you talked to, uh, about Jesus um, and his role in, uh, in relationship to the patriarchy, right? Patriarchy. So can you comment, and anyone on the panel, comment on what does it mean to call God as a God Father if Jesus the Son is dismantling some of that? Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Oh, I know, it's hard. <laughs> and uh, just to give my answer for you, Rachel, very briefly, I don't actually read one verse uh, of the Gospel of John. Probably many of you even know this verse by heart, but uh, let me read it and analyze it together. And this verse goes like, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that anyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. The whole verse is very beautiful and aesthetically and symbolically and theologically, but I'd, I'd like to give my attention to the first phrase, which is what? God so loved the world. And as you may know, in the Gospel of John, this God is referred as God the Father. And when you read the Greek Bible and original Greek language for the New Testament, God so loved, this is written as Hotheos Agapesen. Agapesen is the verb from different verbs from agapao. And from agapao, we get agape. Am I right, anti-scholar, Dr. Nizegutte? So far, so good. <laughs> <laughs> so we got the word agape from agapao and agapesen. So which means in this verse, God the Father loved this world so much with his unconditional and sacrificial love. I think this is a huge, very distinctive Christian manifestation of God as the Father. If I'm wrong, if I'm mistaken, let me know. Nowhere in the Asian Near Eastern literature I have found that mentions God as unconditional and sacrificial God for human beings, both men and women. So in this verse, I see a strong, very distinctive Christian manifestation of God of unconditional and sacrificial love and that God gave us his only son. That's how I interpret mm -hmm. God as the father. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, when, I, when I think about the patriarchy as it was defined on Monday, just um, power and at times abuse of that power. So I think as we read, read about patriarchy through the scriptures, it's through um, the lens of our fallenness as as in humanity. And so I see Jesus, as he comes on the scene, he's restoring and he's redeeming, and so he's making wrong things right. So I think our perspective of God as patriarch is, is redeemed to what it should be and not through the lens of um, the fallenness of man. Yeah, just briefly, one thing to think about is when Jesus introduces the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, the context of that in the Sermon on the Mount is when Jesus tells uh, fellow Jews don't be like the pagans. They're afraid of their God. Their God is way up there, and they're afraid they're going to say the wrong things. In the ancient religions of the Greco-Roman world, you had to say the deity's name exactly right, or you would be cursed. And you'll be more blessed the more words you say. But you look at the Lord's Prayer, very short, very simple, and Jesus says, just speak from the heart. 
He cares. He knows before you even ask. You know, and, and even in the Gospels, he says, um, doesn't a father want to give their kids the best things? You know, they're not going to give you something horrible of, you know, just because you ask, they're going to give you the best things. And it uses kind of our natural instincts of parenthood to show the love of God. So I think Jews actually had a radically warm and gracious view of the fatherhood of God compared to other views at the time. Mm, Thank you. Thank you. All right, Dr. Doak, what do we, what All do we right. have coming out? What have we got? You can write down questions, as always. If you want to write them down and pass yes. them to the aisle, I will totally take them and read them as many as possible. If you want to raise your hand, we could run around to people just to reiterate what our way is here. I've got one written down here. I'll, I'll just go for it. This person says, uh, you know, in a sense, look, we seem to be focusing on gender roles in the Bible rather than Jesus' purpose in coming to earth. I feel like this should be necessary because many people in here don't know the significance of dying on the cross for our sins or even basic stories about Jesus. What, what would you say to that, to that question? Like, why the focus on gender when there's so much to unpack about Jesus? What's, what does this mean? Thank you so much for the question. And I was indeed expecting that question because <laughs> I deal with gender and sex a lot, I guess, on Monday. Well, as you may remember from my lecture on Monday, I said, um, well, Jesus is a savior. And, um, and Jesus came down, just as the Christian says, to save this world, both men and women. Well, once again, why men and women? As I said at the beginning, there are so many things Jesus did, right? And uh, Jesus came down to save the world. He was saving us and liberating us from many social and spiritual sins. And probably this was, that was a conditional clause when I said in, uh, in my lecture, which was, well, there are still so many individual and social sins uh, Jesus liberated us from. So let me a little uh, narrow down my scope, and today I will focus on social impact Jesus made in this society. Probably that's why I too much focus on um, uh, gender issue that was happening in the Bible. But I wanted somehow uh, on purpose to deal with that because uh, as you may know, when we go to churches, like either conservative or uh, liberal or progressive ones, it's a hard topic to talk about. Just to opening up that discussion is hard for many reasons. But uh, I really wanted you to think that really hard because when you graduate from this uh, somehow evangelical bubble of George Fox University, you are going to meet so many different people who have so many different ideas about the Bible and gender roles that's happening in the Bible. So they will come to you if you say, I'm a Christian, I'm a good Christian, I confess Jesus as a savior, and they're going to come to you either atheist, as atheist, or Christian, and they're going to ask you. So I have this very burning question I have it in my mind, especially around the gender issue. Now you're a good Christian, and you say that Jesus liberated us, saved us from all our sins, social and spiritual. Now what is your take, your response, your answer for my question. So my intention on Monday was not really disturb your sound and mellow heart. My intention was preparing you guys for the whole world. When you go outside, you're going to meet those people who have burning questions coming to you to get some, if not at the answer, but some response. So before you graduate, I really hope, but before you finish your freshman years, please think about those questions very hard so that you can serve this world slightly better. That was my intention. 
Dr. Gupta, I know you have, um, you've been out in the world with this conversation. You have a, a blog um, that had a, a viral post um, on, a, on an issue related to this. I'd love to hear your, your reflections on, on the question. Yeah, let, let me say a really quick word about uh, the Christian gospel's relationship to so social and political issues of the day. If we were having this panel in the 1800s, we might be talking about the evils of slavery. And in the auditorium, there would be a mixture of opinions. Some people would find slavery normal, um, acceptable, even biblically appropriate. There are actually some scholars that believe it's biblically appropriate today. And then there'll be other people in the, in the audience who believe it's inappropriate and it should be done with. There'll be some controversy. We're kind of past that now, right? We realize the evils of slavery. When we think about what the gospel does for the world is it helps us place all things in the world against the standard of the gospel and not against quote-unquote human standards. And so John Newton, you may know, who created the song Amazing Grace, um, he became a Christian in his 20s, but he didn't, and he was a slave trader, he didn't stop his connection to the slave trade for 30 more years. It took him 30 years to figure out that slavery was wrong after he had a conversion experience to Christianity. So all that to say, the gospel must touch every area of our personal life, and we have to look outward. Um, and we can talk about details, but just the philosophy of the gospel being meaningful to things like slavery and politics. In theory, Christians have always done that. In terms of gender roles and things, my day job, uh, my <laughs> night job is to Uber my kids around everywhere to soccer, but my day job is to teach about the Bible, and I'll tell you, there is so much misunderstanding about what women do in the Bible and the amazing, and there's so many people that just don't know about the amazing things that women did in, in biblical times um, that surpass our assumptions about women, what women did in the ancient world. And can I just give you a small piece of this? Yes, and then I'm gonna ask all y'all to go back to Dr. Doak's thing about Jesus' son. How does sure. it, yeah. Sure. So, so a little thing is um, the early Christian theologians, John Chrysostom, Origen, Jerome, all these people, they believed that this woman named Junia in Romans 16, verse 7, was not only a leader alongside Paul, but was actually an apostle. We can, you can come talk to me later about that. I'm writing a book about it. But anyway, that's not new news. That's, if you read any commentary <laughs> in Romans, that's out there. It's pretty amazing, though, and Chrysostom was like, this is really amazing. So those kinds of things, some people just don't notice because they don't see it in Romans 16, but it's there. Great. All right, so in, well, actually, Dr. Doak, do we have time for that, or should we kick it back to a question? Yeah, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things here okay. that are fascinating. I mean, I'm, I'm debating between two here that are, are okay. How, okay, how about this one? If God really loves us so much, why didn't he come to die himself instead of sending his son? Isn't that some kind of an escape? Ooh, that's a great question. You know, it could even seem cowardly in a way if you wanted to push it like, you know, here, oh, I'm not going to die for you. Here, take some other guy, take my son. What does this mean in light of the Trinity or our, the Christian idea that Jesus is God? Good question, y'all. All right, who wants to tackle Pastor, that first? you want to go first? Um, 
Well, what immediately comes to mind, Dr. Payne, is what you shared when we opened up today. Just, um, I don't know that it would be less painful for God the Father to watch his son suffer and die. Um, I'm a mother of four kids, and I, I don't want to die, but I would die in a heartbeat if it saved them. Yes. Um, because I would say it is more painful to, to see someone that you love suffer. Um, so I think it's actually, it, it's the opposite of cowardly. Mm. Um, I, I'm sure it was excruciating, but thinking about Trinity as love, I mean, think about Dr. Garcia's um, lecture earlier on, we talked about in God, and just that it's, it's a relationship, and it starts with love and with mystery, and then it's all connected. Um, yeah, so uh, they're separate, but, it's, it, but yet it's really hard to separate them. All right, well, th that's actually a great lead-in to a little bit of a preview, because I'm going to be talking in about three weeks here about the incarnation. Why, did, why does the creed say, uh, born of the Virgin Mary? Um, why is it so important that we have a God who became human? So let me give as brief of an answer as I can. But this actually relates to the sonship of Jesus. When we think of the sonship of Jesus, we have to think of two things happening at the same time. To call Jesus Son of God means that he is God, right? I refer this as Godness. He has Godness about who he is. So in a sense, he's just like God. But to call him Son of God would echo or point to his role as embodying Israel, right? Israel's, and actually Dr. Doak talked about that on Monday, that Israel is called God's son. And in fact, kind of his special or unique or treasured or only son. And so when you read the Gospels and you hear sonship language, you have to think in two things at the same time. Jesus represents God in the Gospels. But you also have to think Jesus represents us. When you think about the phrase in the creed, his only son, you have to attach it to the next phrase, our Lord. Not just the Lord, but our Lord. So imagine this. Imagine, and this would be a really beautiful thing, if the next president was an Indian. <laughs> Right? Wouldn't that be great? Yes. They would institute yeah. Indian food in all the dining halls. It would be wonderful. But when, when, if, I, if the next president was Indian, would I say to myself, oh, he's become a dominator or lord over us? No, I would be like, that's great. He understands me. He'll know what my challenges in life are. Hmm. He looks like me. Right? So to have a son that is just like God, sinless, but to have a son that's just like us, Right? And can identify with our humanness and our weaknesses in terms of being hungry or thirsty or having physical ailments. Jesus got a headache, I assume. Right? That means when we say our Lord, we say he's like us. That's great. One of us is up there on that throne. That's kind of cool. So that's one of the reasons I think that we have so many stories about Jesus in the Gospels. Yeah, just very quickly, I echo what you said. That's very insightful. Well, Dr. Garcia during his lecture like a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, he said that Trinity, Trinity is a perfect manifestation of God's harmony, or a perfect manifestation of God's love that is being formed, that is being practiced inside of the Trinity. And when you read the rest of the Gospel of John, especially toward the end of the Gospel of John, you will see Jesus saying what? I live in God and God lives in me. That perfect relation of love. The perfect sacrificial manifestation between, happening between the, God, the Father and the Son. When you read the part, what do you feel? I feel like 
this is the love I need, really need. And this is the love I can live in with my God and Jesus. So why did God send uh, his only son? Well, for me personally, that's a perfect manifestation that's happening. I mean, the love that's happening between God the Father and the Son. And that personally impacts me a lot. And I believe that has some social implication as well. Mm -hmm. If that kind of love is perfect, we need to seek, we need to look for, well, that, can, that kind of love we should implant in this broken and hungry society as well. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Dr. Doak, what do you have? I have a really fascinating, fascinating question on paper, but in order to unlock it like a code, we have to play the game. Somebody has to talk with their live voice here, okay? So I'm not going to read the good question until somebody asks the question in person. So how about out here? No, we'll, we'll stand okay. here in silence. Don't think I won't do it. I, I'm, I'm that weird. Like, come on. Who wants to talk? Who wants to say something? My section can attest Anybody? Yeah. the same. Who? Where? I, I'm not seeing any hands. Why don't I see hands? Can you coerce anyone into? No, no, no. no. Let's just, I think that we get in trouble for that. Let's just wait it out and see how awkward it can get. Okay. I could do quotes from Thor Ragnarok if you want. <laughs> I'm cold. I I'm made of rocks. Like, yes. But seriously, though, does no one want to ask a question with their own, with their own voice? <laughs> Nobody does. No. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Well, oh wait, oh here we go. Oh, thank oh, you. you did yeah, it. yeah, yeah. I was like, thank you guys you. are stonewalling. Bailed us out here in the front row. Go for it, man. Hey, my name's Noah. Um, What's up, Noah? I'm in your group, actually. Um, so this is a question I've been thinking about for a while, and it's kind of like, you know, we talk about miracles, and we see them be done, um, and, like, I know people, you know, we pray for them, and they're in church, and they definitely happen. Uh, they happen in the time of Jesus, and they happen now. Um, but, like, if you need a miracle and it's not happening, how long do you, you know, work through that miracle? Like, how long do you ask for that miracle or, like, ask for something to be done? Or do you take it as you, you know, like, you just expect it not to be done and then just kind of chase after God? And I don't know. Does that make sense? Ooh, kind yeah. of a question that, like, okay. I wrestle with sometimes. So I like that one. I like that one. All right. Who wants <laughs> so um, I like that. What do you do if, if what you have prayed for in this moment in time has not come to pass, it, be it miraculous? I, I, would, I would think, especially in regards to miracles. That's a good question. I wish that um, my spouse was here. He's a hospital chaplain, so he works with people who usually are dying. Right? And so they, and many of them have, have prayed for that to come to pass. So I appreciate that. That's a high stakes question. And one that our panel, I'm going to invite our panel to answer. Well, I'm a pastor too. So when I was pastoring, especially college students like you guys and adults, young adults, they call me to pray for their health when they are hospitalized or when their parents or grandpa or grandmas are uh, in some critical situation. In this situation, when I get the call, what do I do? Do I pray? Yes, I pray over the phone. I pray for their recovery, speed recovery. I use the language, of course. I pray for the speed recovery. When I pray for that, let me ask you guys one quick question. Do I really believe in that? When I pray for their speed recovery, do I truly believe that? 
Answer is yes. I truly believe the speed recovery. I mean, I pray for that. What, and the question was, what if that really doesn't happen? And after I pray, do I get really disappointed or sob and in tears? Of course I do when I get my prayer is not get answered. But at the same time, I feel like still I prayed and I relied on God. And it's not up to me for the speed recovery. This is a somewhat Presbyterian reformed <laughs> interpretation once again of a human life. We totally rely on God, but I still pray so that I can keep my relationship with God. Well, the other day I was watching uh, the Pentecost. Um, the, do we have any four square church people in this yes, room? Yes, yes, yes. Excellent. If you go to four Red Hills Church, people. that's a four The founder church. of four square church, Amy McPherson. Temple McPherson. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. I was watching her recent movie about her. And at the very beginning of a movie, she is kneeling down on the what, stage. What movie did you watch? Praying for, praying for the recovery of the one, one of the boys. She is now about to raise the kid from the chair to a, on, her, on his feet again. And she was struggling, struggling on the stage. People shouting, people singing what? Heal him, heal him. At that moment, she was like, God, can I still do it? Am I really entitled to do it? What should I do? Can I go on? In that question, she gets in some confusion and she runs away from her famous stage. I mean, that's the movie. I don't know really that really happens in the history. But what I see in the scene is, yes, we still pray, but we are limited human beings, but we still rely on God. She runs away from the scene, from the stage, and in some confusion, she did something crazy and unreally desirable. But uh, after that, after all, eventually she comes back to the podium and stage, and she continues on what she was doing, even though she wasn't able to heal every single person on a stage, but she was moving on, moving forward. So in that tension, conflict, I think that is a positive thing for Christian life. Mm. Professor Armading, I'd love to hear from you. Yeah, um, I'll share a little more personal experience um, that I walked through in relation to this and asking and praying for something you want desperately. And um, I, before I had my, my children now, I became pregnant, and I was so excited. And um, the baby's heart stopped beating, mm. and my body was not miscarrying. Um, and in that, and I waited, and I waited, and in that time, my faith was really tested. I actually was reading the book of Acts at that time when hearing about Jesus raising the dead. Mm. And so I had this newfound faith, and then I had this dilemma. And, and, and I was like, can I ask you for that? Can I believe for that? Like, am I gonna be a fool to want that? And I began praying desperate prayers that resurrected life would happen inside of me because I wanted that baby so badly. And um, I waited and I waited and nothing was happening. And then I reached out to someone, a trusted mentor in my life and said, will you sit with me as I reach out and, and call on, on God because I want this so badly. And, um, and I had an encounter with God in that moment in prayer when I asked him a question and I heard his response to me. And I said, is the baby with you or is the baby with me? And I heard him respond and say, the baby is with me. And I didn't get what I asked for. Mm. I didn't get what I wanted, but I got Jesus. Mm. 
I got a personal savior who was with me in my suffering. And I got someone that was so personal in that moment, he became God with me, understanding my suffering, understanding my pain. And that moment changed me forever. And that was the beginning of a prayer life that I began asking, contending for miraculous things. Some that I've seen and a lot that I haven't, but I'm gonna continue to pray because mm -hmm. I believe he is who he says he is. And, and I'm gonna keep asking and he will meet us in that. Even if we don't get the answer we want, he is God with us, he is close and he is present. And, and, and I think asking matters, prayer matters, mm -hmm. contending matters. Mm -hmm. And we get to see him at work in the world and making himself known to us. Wow, Professor, I'd like to be in your section. Y'all, y'all, that, that's, that's excellent. Um, Dr. Gupta, you wrote a whole book on prayer, mm -hmm. the Lord's Prayer. Any, any thoughts before we kick it back to? Yeah, Dr. well, I'll give you some Greek here, so you, know, so you feel like your, your Friday is more complete. But uh, <laughs> the Greek word for miracles is actually dunamis, which means powerful works of God. And so the first thing to say when we're talking about miracles is these are about what God does for his glory. The second thing to say is in the Gospel of John, miracles are called signs. They point to God. And so when God does miracles in the Bible, he doesn't do them just to make us more comfortable, even though sometimes that happens and it's great. He does it really for us to better understand who he is. And whenever I talk about miracles in the Bible, I say that Jesus didn't heal everybody he could. He didn't bring his own cousin, John the Baptist, back from the dead, hmm. right? And so when I think about why miracles happen sometimes, not others, I guess the basic thing I would say, and I, I don't want to make it trite, I suffer from chronic uh, pain. I've had some really rough experiences in my life, and I'll talk about that in a few weeks. But when I think about my heroes in the faith, they're not people. They're people that have walked hard lives but they live with the peace of God. So I think about these people who have illnesses or have just deep pain in their life, but you see the maturity that comes out of that. So, um, you know, when I, when I think about why miracles happen or don't happen, I don't chalk it up to our prayers. I think if our prayers are, God, I put this before you. Here's what I would like. Here's what I think would bring you glory. But I trust that you will do what brings you the most glory. That's a hard place to be in, obviously. But when I think about, like, for my kids, like, I don't want to shield them from suffering. But I want them to know the gospel in the midst of that, I guess. That's mm. the way I would respond. Wow. wow. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Doak? I have two questions here on paper. I, I wonder if I can get two questions in, just rapid fire. So quicker responses from the panelists. Maybe we could hear from everybody, like a lightning round or something like oh, that. Yeah, that's on good. these two, this is bringing us back to the language of Jesus as son, in particular the idea of patriarchy and women and this kind of stuff. Here's the first one in no particular order. In Catholicism, the Virgin Mary is a super important figure, the mother of all mothers. Why is it in some denominations of Christianity she isn't celebrated? Oh, great. Okay, lightning round. I love this question so much. Great. Who wants to take it on first? Let's I just go had, down like, the line. Timer. Just, okay, just go down the line. Okay, Dr. Yang, will you start? Sorry, right. Very briefly. I'm a Presbyterian, so <laughs> one second. Let me take that into the answer. Uh, well, we love Mary, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus. We just don't have that much significance. Well, Catholic, Catholicism, from the beginning, they have a very strong emphasis on. Um, 
Mary the mother, mother of God or mother of Jesus. Well, I'm not really opposed. I'm not really, I'm not really against, against it. There's a different uh, way of uh, respecting the tradition and we Presbyterians somehow developed more with uh, a tradition having more focus on the word. So when you go to Baptist church, as you may know, for, the, for them baptism is the strong emphasis in their faith. And when you go to the Methodist, as you may know, they have a very strong focus on social justice and Holy Spirit. So you might, you might want to say, well, why, why so many denominations, so many different paths of getting to God? Well, think about your own life, your own friends. When you ask your own Christian friends, you may get different answers and different interpretations of Jesus and the Holy Spirit as well. So individuals are different. So denominations are different, having different emphasis in the Christian tradition. But all together, I believe, they work together to provide the whole picture of God and the Christianity. All right, Professor. This, uh, isn't, this isn't really working as a lightning round, so I'm going to ask the second yeah, question. Yeah, do it. Okay. If Jesus really destroyed patriarchy, could he still have done it as a woman? Could Jesus have actually been a woman? Wouldn't that have been a more radical destruction of patriarchy if Jesus had been a woman? Good question. Well, Jesus wasn't a woman. Um, and we're done here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but I, I would say as a woman, honestly, having the patriarchy destroy, like, having that be um, faced head on by a man actually I think is more, imp more impactful. That would be my response. Lightning round, achieve. Dr. Gupta, Dude, what do you Gupta. think? Dr. Gupta, could Jesus have been a woman? That's a, that's a really tough one. Um, I mean, it's kind of speculation to, to wonder. I, I mean, I often wonder why the disciples were only men. So I'll, I'll frame it in terms of that broader category. And I think, um, so my answer to that question, which is not your question, is... Um, in terms of their ability to, to, to lead and be in society together, like, like they would be sleeping in the same rooms and things like that, you know, in terms of just the expansion of that ministry that Jesus had, it would just technically in that time just, just be able to be more public in that way. Uh, unfortunately, at that time, women just were not given the time of day. They were not philosophers. They were not public speakers. And so just to have someone who could be out in public, I mean, that, that, that's partly the reason I think disciples were men. In terms of Jesus could be a woman, uh, I, I don't really have an answer to that. I don't know. I don't know if I have an answer to that question. Okay. Dr. Doak, another lightning round question. Oh, th no, those were the two lightning oh, rounds. Oh, oh, okay. Sorry about that. Wow. I, I, may yep. have, I may have wandered too far back with the microphone here. We have two minutes. Do we have uh, Yeah, a, I could give another one. Minute? Totally. Um, I'm trying to find the one that I was looking for here. And I'm just going to do like an, an audible like. Okay, if lightning they, round. This is a different okay. topic, just totally off okay. the topic, but still within faith. Lightning round. Can a rational, intelligent person that is honestly and earnestly seeking the truth come to the conclusion that Christianity is wrong, in your opinion? Ooh, interesting. So Christian is it wrong? I wish we had right? a philosopher. Could, can a rational, intelligent person that is honest and earnest in seeking the truth, come to the conclusion that Christianity is wrong? I think that maybe yes initially, but I think if they keep seeking the truth and they don't stop, that um, God's truth is 
when it is sought after, it, he will reveal himself. I think about um, stories of C.S. Lewis or people who were atheists and in their pursuit of truth had a turning. So I think maybe people might come to a place where they think that that is true, but if they continue to keep learning, I believe that you're seeking truth. God is truth and it will be revealed. Well, we have a lot of truth seekers here in this in this crowd and so i appreciate that that call to seek god in truth all right it uh thank you so much for the panel can we give a hand to the panel thank you guys